Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Robin D'Angelo is a lecturer on issues of racial social justice. She's also the best-selling author of White Fragility. And if you haven't read it yet, go get a copy as soon as you can. Today, Robin challenges us on what we think we know about racism and what we may have been unconsciously ignoring about ourselves. There's a misunderstanding that racism is individual and conscious. And because we don't perceive this correctly, we're actually protecting systemic racism. Robin makes the argument that white progressives are actually the most difficult for people of color and that conversations about race are so difficult to have because it creates so much defense in the average white person who wants to believe that we're well past that. Robin reminds us that history is not an arc of continual progress as we're often taught to see it. We still have a lot of hard but worthy work to do. Overall, our conversation begs the question, how do you challenge a system from within the system? We often just think about it in terms of, of adding, right? We need to add more people of color into this water, what I think of as the water. But we're adding them into hostile water if we've never addressed the water itself. I'll let Robin take it from here. I have been dying to meet you. Like I think everyone in this country, mm. I've read White Fragility. Did you expect that it was going to be such a massive and enduring seller? No. I knew that it would have an audience built in because I had written the article that it's based on. And that article had gone viral and it was – the term was already in the kind of popular culture. But no, I, I couldn't have dreamed that it would have debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. And it has remained there for over a year. I know. It's crazy. Yeah. But it's – it's such an essential work. Do you mind if I read you a section from your book? No. Okay. <laughs> you write, I believe that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color. I define a white progressive as any white person who thinks he or she is not racist or is less racist or in the choir or already gets it. White progressives can be the most difficult for people of color because to the degree that we think we have arrived – we will put our energy into making sure that others see us as having arrived. None of our energy will go into what we need to be doing for the rest of our lives. Engaging in ongoing self-awareness, continuing education, relationship building, and actual anti-racist practice. White progressives do indeed uphold and perpetrate racism, but our defensiveness and certitude make it virtually impossible to explain to us how we do so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Yes, and that's a rather controversial claim. It has been a controversial claim to say that white progressives cause, or I would say may cause, the most daily damage, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly in a moment in our nation where white nationalism, like explicit white supremacy, is on the rise. So I don't ever want to minimize that reality and that we need to pay attention that white nationalists are recruiting in schools and with young people. And if we take a Richard Spencer, who is kind of the head of that movement, Richard Spencer organized the Unite the Right Mm -hmm. rally in Charlottesville that many of us are aware of. Unfortunately, he's from Montana, which is my home state. It's very embarrassing. Right. Well, I can only imagine that for a a black person, for example, to to come across a Richard Spencer may be somewhat terrifying, at least unsettling. But the odds are on a daily basis, they're not going to come across Richard Spencer. They're going to come across me, mm-hmm. right? They're going to come across you. They're going to come across these well-intentioned white folks that they work with and live with. And we are the ones that are sending so many people of color home on a daily basis, having to agonize all night long whether it's worth it to talk to us about that unaware, all but, you know, albeit harmful microaggression, you know, mm-hmm. that slight, that indignity that we perpetrated. And most of the time deciding it's actually not worth it to try to talk to us because things tend to get worse for people of color, not better when they try to challenge white people on our inevitable but often unaware racist patterns and perspectives and behaviors, right? So that's that daily harm. Mm -hmm. That's that I'm going to put air quotes around more subtle, you know, subtle to me as a white person. You know, I I think we're taught to think about racism as these just obvious, you know, saying the N-word, you know, giving a slur. But I would offer that the inability for most white people to answer the question, what does it mean to be white? Actually, the collective impact of our inability uh, creates an environment that ends up being hostile Mm -hmm. to people of color on a daily basis. Because if I can't tell you what it means to be white, I cannot hold what it means not to be white, right? right? I'm going to end up denying, maybe even refusing your reality. Right. And that can be much more debilitating than some of the obvious stuff. Sometimes the obvious stuff is easier to handle. I mean, countless people of color have said to me, give me the old school straight up in your face racist. I I know where they're coming from. I can protect myself. But I'm smiling at you while there's basically a knife in your back. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm undermining you in every way and in ways that I'm not even aware I'm undermining you. And yet. You can't really call me in on it or I erupt in tears and, you know, hurt feelings. That can be much more treacherous and and emotionally draining. Yeah. And I'd say, too, that one of the biggest parts of white privilege in a way is the ability to actually avoid the conversation or turn around, turn away from the conversation or ignore it. Right. right? Like that's the whole point. I think so many of us have been like, oh, things are getting better without actually engaging, looking, or paying attention. Well, I should hope that no white person is seeing the current reality and thinking things are getting better. (laughs) I think what's going on right now helps show us, one, we are not Mm post-racial because we had Obama as a president, and that history is not actually an arc of of continual progress as we're often taught to see it, but it's cycles, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, in many ways, we're in the 60s in terms of the permission that's been given to explicitly express 
racism. Yeah. One point, really salient point that you make in the book, too, is obviously we all in some ways acknowledge that we have implicit bias and and we're coming around to this idea that we, of course, are prejudiced. But we've also been taught that, you write, the prevailing belief that prejudice is bad causes us to deny its unavoidable reality. Yeah, I don't know if you could have come up with a more effective adaptation of systemic racism than to reduce racism to this idea that it's racism is individual, conscious, intentional hurt across race. In other words, as soon as you have individual, then that allows me to say, well, not this individual, right, mm-hmm. that one. So now I can exempt myself. It has to be conscious, apparently. And most of the racism that I'm perpetrating is not conscious. And it has to be intentional, right, mm-hmm. in order to count. And it's it's generally not intentional. And even if it is, I'm not going to admit to that, right? So individual, conscious, malintent across race just perfectly protects systemic racism because it makes it virtually impossible to talk to the average white person about our inevitable socialization into racism. Mm -hmm. And I think that definition is the root of almost all white defensiveness. Have you noticed any white defensiveness? (laughs) Some of your listeners are going to feel defensive right now by the fact that we're talking in general terms about white people, not granting white people, you know, their special unique exemptions to this will trigger white fragility. Right. But that idea that it's a matter of good people versus bad people, what I call the good-bad binary, uh, just works to protect it, right? It makes being a good person, a nice person, a well-intentioned person, which who isn't, <laughs> right? and complicity with racism mutually exclusive. Totally. Right. And you explain that it's really discrimination is sort of the acting on prejudice, right? Well, so, yes. So everybody has prejudice. Absolutely everybody, right? I mean, human beings are not objective. We all have socially learned biases about social others as defined in a given culture. I mean, even our idea of who is a social other. You know, for example, transgender people, gender non-binary people. This is a idea or a reality or understanding I didn't have 20 years ago, right? So even this is a evolves and changes. But all of us have preconceived ideas, and all of us act on those, right? But when you back one group's prejudice with legal authority and institutional control, it's now transformed into a far-reaching system. So the impact is just profoundly different. And the example I often use is women's suffrage, Mm. right? So prior to suffrage, suffrage is the right to vote, prior to women being granted the right to vote, they could certainly be angry about, uh, towards men. They could be prejudiced towards men. They could be. They could discriminate against men in one-on-one interactions, right? I, I, I'm sure I would have some attitude <laughs> at that time. It's kind of been argued that I might still, but nonetheless. <laughs> but could women literally deny every single man in the entire society his civil rights? Absolutely not. Could men do that to women? Absolutely. Why? Because men's bias was backed with legal authority and institutional control, right? right? And that is a distinction distinction that just has to be made. And when we don't make that distinction, we trivialize the profundity of the difference in impact when one group's bias is backed with power. So everybody has bias, but not everybody is in a position to infuse it across the entire society. And And I need to note 
Of course, it was white women that were granted access, full access to the right to vote in 1920 and white men who granted it to us. So this is another example of power is that the dominant group experience is held up as universal, right? right. So while we were oppressed as women, we were privileged as white. Right. And so there, this is the great critique of what's called nowadays white feminism, mm. this idea that that all women experience patriarchy in the same way when, of course, race powerfully mediates how we experience patriarchy. Of course. And many or a majority of the early heroes in the feminist movement are black women. Mm -hmm. So white women owe an incredible debt yes. to those leaders. Right. But that gets erased, right? And who yeah. do we who do we hold up and elevate? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you talk about systemic you talk about affirmative action, which isn't even relevant in, in the private sector, but how that as that single kind of toothless, right, piece mm -hmm. of legislation is held up now as a banner of equality, right? And that yeah. but we have the systemic you know, from redlining, from the underfunding of schools in neighborhoods that are predominantly underrepresented. It goes on and on and on and on. I mean, this list of that you published in the book, and I know it's probably only slightly outdated because mm -hmm. the book came out in before the midterm elections, but the 10 richest Americans are 100% white. U.S. Congress, 90% white. I don't know what it is now. Uh, the Senate is about 93% white and the House about 73%. That's bonkers. 96% mm -hmm. um, of the U.S. governors are white. 100% of the top military advisors, the president and vice president, U.S. House Freedom Caucus, 99% white. People who decide which TV shows we see, 93% white. People who decide which books we read, 90% white, et cetera. Teachers, 82% white, and full-time college professors, 84% white. That's just a scattering of, of what you list. But it's it's so – and I, I, we talk about this a lot in the context of business and and what we see in, in corporate cultures, but there's no pipeline, right? Like you get to the top leadership ranks of a majority of companies in this country – and there are very few women, and there are yeah. very few people of color. Yeah. Well, you know, all systems of oppression, racism is one system of oppression, of oppression sexism, heterosexism, ableism, right? These are systems of oppression. All of them can uh, accommodate exceptions, but the rule will be very, very consistent, right? This is pretty enduring. And I make, I make the point of those statistics to, one, drive home how white-dominated our, our society is, but also that white people are not just people in that sense, right? They're not just objective. They're not just individuals. That is a particular position in the world, a, a particular experience and a particular viewpoint, but it's held up as a universal viewpoint, right? And I, I often use the example of film because so many of us are so deeply shaped by the stories in film. And of the 100 top grossing films of all time worldwide disseminated from the U.S., 99 were directed by men and 95 of them white. And yet, White male directors are just 
directors telling a universal human story, mm-hmm. right? And yet, so I use the example that Mike Lee is just a film director, you know, again, telling a universal human story, and Spike Lee will always be a f- black film director. So by n- always naming Spike Lee's race, but never naming Mike Lee's race, mm-hmm. what we grant to Mike Lee is objectivity, individuality, and also universality. In other words, I can speak for all of humanity. And Spike Lee is always speaking to a particular humanity, right? Mm-hmm. We do this with women too, around gender, right? And and white men, by the way, are 31% of the population. So this is not about numbers. Uh, it's about power. You mentioned affirmative action. And mm-hmm. there is a slide that I show that that begins with 300 years of kidnapping, enslavement, rape, torture, and brutality. It's a slide that I'm showing to kind of break down anti-blackness. Mm-hmm. And it goes all the way through to the, to the present time. It's a very dense, very powerful, overwhelming slide. And it's designed to be that way. And I will show that slide. And then inevitably someone will say, but what about affirmative action? Mm-hmm. You know, and that you could look at that and then bring up affirmative action as a form of reverse racism. I mean, it's a great example of kind of white psychosis, to be really honest. It's, it's kind of delusional. And, of course, affirmative action has almost been dismantled. It, it never applied to private organizations, et cetera, et cetera. Or I should say you had to have at least 50 employees. There's some there's some criteria that before it would apply. It's been said by others, when you're used to 100%, 98 feels oppressive. Right. <laughs> but it's true when you think about sort of the, the makeup of these powerful functions in our society. And at the very beginning of the book, you make the point, and this, I think, gives us hope in terms of how we can start to change things. When people are not represented at the table and their decisions are being made that affect all of us, it's sort of, it is also a a kind of insanity to assume that people can telegraph our needs. Like we we absolutely have to change the way that we're all represented up at these upper echelons of power in order to see real change. Otherwise, it will always be tokenism unless it's unless it's so profoundly informed by voices of people at companies and in yeah. the culture that those voices are being raised all the way to the top. Like it won't change until we change the seats at the table. Right. And we often just think about it in terms of, of adding, right? We need to add more people of color into this water, what I think of as the water. But we're adding them into hostile water if we've never addressed the water itself, right? Mm-hmm. So the exa- I, I often draw from sexism and patriarchy. I am a white woman, but as a woman, sexism and patriarchy is something I've been thinking about my entire life, right? Because I swim against the current there. It's easy to see. But I was in my 30s before I ever considered how I benefited from and colluded with somebody else's oppression, in this case, race because, of course, there I swim with the current, right? And so I draw from sexism, and I would really encourage white women to draw from sexism, but please not to use it to exempt ourselves, Mm -hmm. right? We white women have to stop using sexism to protect racism, right? Uh, Us experiencing oppression here doesn't mean we don't collude with it somewhere else, right? And so I 
in drawing from that, I show a picture of the House Freedom Caucus. So it's this, it's this conference table, and it, it's filled with powerful white men. Right. And I asked white women to imagine, you know, you you go into that room by yourself and your job is to help these men see their unaware sexist patterns. Right. Does that sound appealing to you? Like, right. <laughs> it, I, I would run. Right. And walking into the room, the power that they embody would be visceral to me as a woman. Right. And you can add 10 women into that room. But if you've done nothing to change the consciousness of the men who control the table, have always controlled the table, and let's face it, it's up to them whether those 10 women even get into the room. If you've done nothing to simultaneously address their consciousness, you are putting those women into hostile water, right? So we, we got to move beyond just adding people and, as you're saying, address everybody's part in this. It's, it's like a dance almost, right? There are roles and we all play them. And we have to change our question, those of us who are white, from if I've been shaped by this system I was born into to how have I been shaped by this system? Mm -hmm. Because when I ask if, it's so easy to say, no, I don't let advertising affect me. You know, I, you know, blah, 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 all the evidence white people use to exempt ourselves from the water we're swimming in, right? right. And when we change the question from if to how... Well, that also allows me, you know, that, that precious individuality so many white people want. Great. What do you see as unique and different about yourself? Then take each of those things and ask yourself how they set you up to collude with racism. Because nothing could and nothing did exempt any of us. We were born into it. Mm -hmm. Right? And that's each of our individual journeys. How have I been set up into it? And, and what part do I play? Right. Absolutely. I mean, I know you call out individualism as this, you know, sort of great myth. And it's a way that we keep ourselves safe mm -hmm. from having to examine why a job might have come to us easier or getting into a school might have been more available. Mm -hmm. And it's hard, right? Because in that process, we have to deny some of the things that we think make us exceptional Mm -hmm. And acknowledge that we were really not only maybe lucky, but also that we benefited. I mean, growing up in media, and I have this conversation with my brother, who's a book editor, there is no diversity in part because, particularly in New York City, there is not a livable wage associated with entry-level jobs and publishing. And so it is, it is often a space that only people who can lean on parents can enter into, you know? Like, there are all these excuses, but it's a system that mm -hmm. sort of enforces itself and self-selects often. Yeah, I mean, this requires something of us, right? Mm -hmm. we, we have to give something up, right? We may not be able to have quite the profit margin we would have, but if we, if we are genuine that we want to have a more racially just society, then we have to look at those norms, policies, and practices, right? Ibram Kende, a brilliant scholar of African uh, Africana studies, wrote Stamped from the Beginning, mm -hmm. the definitive history of racist ideas in America, won the National Book Award, uh, also just finished an 
also just wrote How to Be an Anti-Racist. He just very clearly and simply defines a racist policy as any policy that has a racially unequal outcome. Right. And by that measure, basically almost all our policies are racist. So we have to be willing to get those on the table. I want to challenge the um, words or terms or ideas like lucky and fortunate, right? Yeah. Because people will, white people often say, I was just really lucky or fortunate I grew up in this environment. I went to this school. But, you know, all white neighborhoods, for example, are primarily white neighborhoods. All of that, schools, these are the results of decades of policies and practices, de jure in the past, de facto in the present, right? And so I always want to push back against this idea that it's a fluke or that it just happens, right? This, this is, again, the outcome of policies. Yeah. And, you know, it's really deep work. Right. This is this is really deep work to to almost dismantle my very identity at the core and rebuild it. Right. And that means I'm going to have to build my tolerance for feelings of guilt and shame. Right. And rather than kind of run in the face of those or use those as reasons why I just can't engage, actually build my ability to tolerate them and move through them. Otherwise, they're just functioning as excuses that protect the status quo and my position within it. Absolutely. And I want to get into sort of the racial resilience piece and some of those tactical things. And first, I think it's important, too, to talk about the racial disparity that happens within the the criminal justice system and what happens to Black and Latina ex-children, which is that whatever whatever offense they might have committed, however minor, is attributed to sort of their interior Mm -hmm. qualities. Mm -hmm. Whereas for white teenagers who are caught with pot or shoplift or whatever Mm -hmm. it may be that would jeopardize a black child's future, Mm -hmm. it is attributed to external factors, right? Like, oh, he was bullied or... He's mentally ill. Yes, and what that reinforces is that there's something inherently criminal about youth of color in this case, and something more a victim kind of orientation for for white youth. And we definitely see that in a really current example is the reaction to the opiate Mm -hmm. crisis, right? Even the word crisis, right? So crack was a crisis that killed a lot of people, took a lot of lives, destroyed a lot of lives. And and what we did is increase punishment, Mm -hmm. right? And in a large way, that has contributed to mass incarceration, right? And the opiate addiction is how are we going to help these people who are victims of an unfair, you know, pharmaceutical industry, right? I mean, those, those ways of viewing have concrete, tangible outcomes for people's lives, right? We have to be able to examine that, mm-hmm. right? And and pointing a finger at, oh, it's those people in the, in the justice system. It's me also, right? Mm-hmm. So this gets back to what part do I play in this? Right. Right. And exactly, and it's extending sort of humanity and justice to all, right? Mm-hmm. And a desire or willingness to understand and empathize and then push for i mean how how as citizens when you think about um mass incarceration when you think about these other injustices within that system how do we as citizens inform and change that well voting is a huge is a huge way right who we vote i think we don't tend to pay attention to votes 
for judges, mm-hmm. right, for those who pass legislation. Those are powerful positions, and we're not paying attention to them. And right now, actually, the Trump administration has been very effective at, at replacing many, many, many judges throughout the the system with conservative mm-hmm. tend to be white and male judges. And the, these changes, these decisions are going to have out, outcomes and impacts that we can't even imagine at this point, right? But we aren't going to be able to connect to what we, we are talking about in terms of being able to examine the biases that I hold. Why do I see one kind of youth this way and another kind this way, right? If we continue to live segregated lives. Mm-hmm. And most white people live segregated lives. And I'm going to imagine most of your listeners are living segregated lives. And we simply can't have or build authentic, sustained cross-racial relationships. And I'm not talking about housekeepers, right? I'm not talking about who's setting your table as evidence that you don't live a segregated life. I'm talking about who's sitting at your table, who's actually in your circle, right? There's so much powerful socialization that comes through segregation. So not only do we have a very limited understanding of the world, not only do we not really know what's going on with other people, right? A lot of what we see today, we see because we finally have a way to provide evidence of what happens to black people, right, Mm -hmm. for example, right? These executions of unarmed black people, these calling the police because somebody's napping in a space that you don't think they should be in. This has always happened, Right. But we've always told people that, you know, that couldn't be happening because it doesn't happen to us. Mm -hmm. But now we have evidence. Right. Because you can film it. But living in segregation, we're just simply not going to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. Right. We're going to project our own experience. And also subliminally, we're being reinforced in whiteness as ideal, in white superiority. Right. Every moment that we talk about a neighborhood as good and safe because it's white or a school as good and safe because it's white, we're reinforcing this idea that there's no inherent value in integrated life. Mm-hmm. In fact, white people, we measure the value of our spaces by the absence of people of color. And, and let's be honest, black people in particular Right. And I'm not trying to reinforce a hierarchy of which group of color is oppressed more than others. But I do believe that after 20 plus years of talking to white people about race, that there is something profoundly Mm anti-black in this country and that in the white mind, black people are the ultimate racial other. Mm -hmm. We have the most energy about black people. We have the most anxiety about black people. And when I want white people to get in touch with all of that implicit bias, I ask us to think about black people, Mm -hmm. right? And we do tend to measure the value of everything by the absence of black people. We'll get back to Robin DiAngelo in just a second. So, clearly I'm biased, but the Goop podcast is one of the most rewarding projects that I've ever worked on at Goop, or really anywhere. I love the conversations I get to have here with so many incredible thought leaders. Pretty much ever since we launched the Goop podcast, we've been dreaming up other podcast series that we'd want to listen to and share with you guys. Our first series to follow the Goop podcast is called Goop Fellas. It's hosted by, yes, you guessed it, two men. 
Will Cole is a functional medicine practitioner, and Seamus Mullen is a chef. They've both become good friends of mine and part of the Goop family. You might have heard them both on this podcast before. Like me, and many of you, I'm sure, Will and Seamus are really interested in what drives people to change, to heal, to reinvent themselves, to reclaim their health, or bounce back from a heartbreak. Seamus himself almost died from rheumatoid arthritis, and Will's day job is helping people uncover and overturn the roots of disease. In other words, they are intimately familiar with unlikely personal transformations. On Goop Fellas, Will and Seamus sit down with people who have incredible stories about confronting life challenges. It's our hope that these conversations will appeal to men, because I don't think there is enough space in our culture for men to be vulnerable. But this is also a series for women, and for that matter, for anyone who is looking to bring about change in their life, big or small. You can listen to Goop Fellas on your favorite podcast platforms. We've just launched the first season, and we'll be dropping new episodes on Wednesdays. Subscribe to keep up. And to learn more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. I hope you love Will, Seamus, and this series as much as I do. We're always trading new recipes and nutrition hacks at Goop, and walking through our staff kitchen around noon is a great way to see who can outlunch each other. Not that it's a competition or anything, but one thing pretty much everyone at the office can agree on is that the ideal lunch requires minimal preparation, is enjoyable to eat, and still nutritious. Daily Harvest is on a mission to make good food that fits into our modern and busy lives. They deliver thoughtfully sourced, chef-crafted food to your door with organic fruits and vegetables at the base. Everything requires five minutes or less of prep time so you can eat nutritious foods and keep it convenient. Daily Harvest works directly with farmers to source quality organic fruits and vegetables, and then they freeze them to lock in nutrients. Their in-house chef and nutritionist uses these ingredients to make more than 65 different soups, smoothies, opals, and other snacks. We've tried many ourselves, and you can too, if you head to dailyharvest.com. Just enter code GOOP25 to get $25 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com and use code GOOP25. Okay, let's get back to my chat with Robin D'Angelo. Do you think that part of it, not to get really goopy on you, is that, again, going to white fragility and our lack of resilience around these conversations and needing to not engage because it's so painful. Do you think it is subconsciously that we all recognize, even if it hasn't been conscious until recently, but that we've all recognized our privilege and that we don't know how to face it? I mean, it's and, and it's, it's obviously it's a stomach. I mean, Brian, when Brian Stevenson was on the podcast, I mean, he was talking about being in Germany and how, as a country, the idea of having statues of, of Hitler up is so, I mean, that is not within, I mean, that is not a possibility, right? And yet slavery is not that long ago. And yet we still obviously have Confederate statues all over. The, like, we still celebrate a totally fucked up time that's still going in a, in a modern way when you look at the prison system. So do you think it is just this? Do you think it is white fragility and that we just... Well, I think, I think many, many things lead to this result of, of white fragility. And white fragility functions to protect mm-hmm. all of those things, right? So we have never come to terms, right, reconciled our 
our past with enslavement, right? Mm -hmm. That is a piece of, I think, why you see a difference here than, than say, a place like Germany, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I think that our socialization as white people within a white supremacist society, and let me, let me <laughs> explain what I mean because it's a very loaded term for many white people, is we tend to associate it with, you know, the KKK and people wearing hoods. But it's actually a highly descriptive sociological term to describe a society in which white people are held up as the ideal for human, mm -hmm. as the human norm. And a lot of the things we've been talking about are examples of white as ideal. And all of us absorb that message, right? The research here is very, very clear. So there are many pieces that, that collectively go into our socialization, right? Mm -hmm. So there's individualism, right? And then there's objectivity that we're granted, right? And when you challenge these things... We, we kind of become undone, mm -hmm. right? And we tend to lash back at that challenge and which functions to kind of repel it and to protect our positions. But another piece of the way that we're socialized into a society in which white supremacy is the basis of that society, on the one hand, we really are taught to be oblivious to all of this, right? I mean, it is sincere when white people say, oh, my God, I had no idea, like that moment, right? For me, it came when I read Peggy McIntosh's list of white privilege. She's got mm -hmm. this really famous article called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. And it was that like <gasps> aha moment where you go, oh, my God, I see it, right? So on the one hand, we really are taught not to see it. But on the other hand, I think we all do know. Mm -hmm. I know, and you know, but we can't really admit to what we know, right? Mm -hmm. And so both those things are operating, and it starts to make us really irrational. Mm -hmm. We kind of don't know, but we kind of do know, but we can't admit it. Uh, we're taught to see ourselves as individuals. We are not taught in any, any consistent or quality way about racism, and yet we all have opinions that we think are as valid as anybody else's. So we have mm -hmm. that dynamic. Everybody's opinion counts. Write in and give your opinion on this talk after you hear it, right? Honestly, most white people are not informed enough on this topic for their opinions to be particularly valid. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm just going to say that. I know that's a bold thing to say. I'm going to say that many of your listeners right now are sitting back and deciding what they agree with and what they don't. Mm -hmm. And so here's what I would offer white listeners who are doing that right now. I'm going to offer you a question. What qualifies you to disagree with me? Okay. There are definitely people qualified to disagree with me. Brian Stevenson <laughs> would be one of them. But really what I would ask your listener is, is it you? Are you one of those people, right? Have you devoted years and years and years of study, struggle, research, mistake-making, relationship building, day in and day out, breaking with white solidarity, challenging your fellow white people? If you have not engaged in that or you're not engaged in that, have some humility, Right. Mm -hmm. But we don't have humility around this. This is another piece that leads to white fragility. Right. And if we're going to be really honest, internalized superiority. It's not just that we feel so bad. It's that we feel superior. That we, on some level, there's no way we didn't miss the message that we are in our rightful place. I mean, that's going on, too. 
Mm -hmm. right? But that's really hard to admit to and to look at. So when you put all this together, guilt, shame, superiority, individuality, uh, entitlement to be comfortable racially, the result is uh, irrationality. And one of the through lines is discomfort, right? I think, you know, having these conversations is hard. People would rather avoid the gaffe than go there. And and then in the process of having the conversation, having to do the inventory of your life, your actions, is very uncomfortable. Yeah, it takes a little bit of effort, right? You yeah. know, th- there's this really, really tight hook here, right? On the one hand, I really sincerely believe that the average well-intended white person would never want to at a conscious level, would never want to hurt somebody based on race, mm-hmm. okay? So on the one hand, I would never want to hurt anybody. And on the other hand, don't you dare tell me I just hurt somebody, right? Right? Like, how do we respond when someone says, hey, I know you didn't mean to, but you just did. Oh, I did not. How dare you? You don't know me. If you knew me, you'd know I couldn't, right? You see the good, bad binary just erupt, right? Right. And I often ask uh, people of color in my, in my sessions, how often have you attempted to give a white person feedback on their inevitable and often unaware racist patterns, perspectives, and behaviors, and how'd that go well for you? Mm-hmm. And they laugh and they roll their, even white people laugh, even we know. Yeah. They roll their eyes. And the, the most common answer, never. Mm-hmm. And the second most common, rarely. Right? And so most of the time they actually don't bother. Right? Mm-hmm. And we read that as a sign that we're doing fine. Right. Right? So, you know, you we cannot... We cannot get to where we need to go from the dominant paradigm, which says only mean, intentionally mean people could ever be racist. Right. Right. We just can't get there from that from that framework. Right. Once you start from the premise, of course, I have these patterns. Of course, I have these investments. Of course, I have this socialization. I didn't choose it. I don't feel guilt. And I'm being sincere right here. I don't struggle with guilt. Right. And I'm not looking for it. I don't want your listeners to be feeling guilty unless it motivates them. Right. <laughs> I mean, as a, I was also raised Catholic. So, you know, <laughs> how it functions is always the, the question you want to ask. Right. But what I, I don't struggle with guilt because I didn't choose this. Mm-hmm. I do. What I do struggle with is responsibility. All right. But but here I am now and I was socialized this way. And so I need to take responsibility for the outcome. And it's actually fantastically liberating. Right. Because now I can stop defending, denying, debating, you know, arguing, hoping you won't notice, avoiding and just get to work. Right. In what does it look like in my life? And it's it, it is painful at times. It is also the most stimulating, thought provoking, psychically, emotionally, spiritually journey you could ever be on. Yeah. And nothing I, will put you up to your learning edge like this. And I think in the book you say when you're talking when you're talking about feedback, right? And and sort of looking for feedback. And again, I think that there's a, a line, right, between expecting people of color to teach us. Yeah. It's on us to learn. Mm-hmm. It's not their job to be in that position. But in those moments of feedback, you write the or this is a good guideline. How, where, and when you give me feedback is irrelevant. It is the feedback I want and need. Understanding that it is hard to give, I will take it any way I can get it. 
from my position of social, cultural, and institutional white power and privilege, I am perfectly safe and I can handle it. If I cannot handle it, it's on me to build my racial stamina. Thank you. <laughs> I love that. I mean, it's, Thank and it you. is, it's the relaxing into it, right? It's a, the allowing it to happen. It's seen as a kind of a precious gift. Yeah. Right? Like, given how seldom it goes well, given the risk they're taking, given the history of harm, mm-hmm. right? That they're actually giving you something that is really, really useful that we claim we want to know. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at it that way, and this is where sexism, my understanding of sexism as a woman has really helped me. Right. So, so I would ask you, how often have you tried to give a man feedback on his unaware sexist assumptions and had that go well for you? I just avoid, <laughs> avoid, totally, right? avoid. Yes. Honestly, what's rarely, the point? Yeah. Rarely, right? It's also incredibly intimidating to think about it, right? And so most of the time, I just give up and accept it, right? And although I will say when I was a child, <laughs> I went to Washington, D.C. and visited our congressman who is kind of a despicable man, Conrad Burns, and he said something incredibly sexist. I was on a mathlete's team. I was the only girl about how his wife was back in Montana ironing his good white shirts. Yikes. And so I wrote a letter to the editor, like, denouncing him. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the rarely. few times that might be the last right. time. The few times, and in some ways, obviously, right, it's a little easier when you were really young. I mean, the power differences between you were great. But yeah. you, you also wrote a letter. You didn't to his face, right? And the few times that I have done it, I've done it when I'm upset enough to push through all my intimidation, right? If I wait until I'm not upset, I'll talk myself out of it, right? And so understanding that, it's it's kind of like, sure, they're telling you and they seem upset and angry and maybe they are, right? It, what are the rules for how somebody should give you feedback that you're hurting them, mm-hmm. right? Only when they're calm and, and ra- you know, so-called rational, right? And so, yeah, and we alone. need to give it a, give a, yes. Yeah. Give it away. Take the kernel that's being given to you. You talk, this was a gut punch, but this was so, because I think as women, we tend to, again, be like, we're all on the same side and we're all, you know, <laughs> victims of a patriarchy. But you talk about the tears of white women and in the context of racism, how particularly triggering that is, right? Because it was the tears of white women that got so many black men lynched. Mm-hmm. It's just an interesting, I think we're some, so unconscious of all the implications of. Yeah, and in the same way that the white woman is the ideal woman, right? right. I mean, we, I'm sure, you know, each woman has all her <laughs> securities of insecurities of how we're not ideal. But if there's going to be the image of an ideal woman, it's going to be a white woman. And we've been socialized to, to attend to her distress, right? And certainly mm-hmm. men have been socialized to attend to the distress of white women, right? And so I, I'm glad you brought this up because a lot of people uh, take this like super literally, right? Like white women cannot cry, do not cry. No. What I want you to consider is there is an impact to your tears. Mm-hmm. It affects other people. This is an external 
thing that you're doing that I can see, and it, it impacts me, right? And so how, when, where I cry, what I'm crying about, how my tears are impacting others, this should be attended to. Because on some level, I think we do need to ask ourselves, why aren't our hearts breaking? Mm-hmm. I mean, I actually believe it should be required of all white people to watch when they see us. Right. And and just ask ourselves, why aren't our hearts breaking if they're not breaking? Mm. What happened to us? Mm-hmm. Right. That we are so shut down around racial injustice. And on the other hand, right, to watch how our tears impact other people to gather resources back to ourselves. Right. So. I have been in many a cross-racial discussion where a person of color has shared a story and it has definitely moved me to tears, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the key is to cry quietly, if you will, right? Like just to not not to take up all the space with my tears. And when people reach over to comfort me to, to let them know that I'm that I'm okay. I'm just bearing witness. I'm moved by what I'm witnessing. Mm-hmm. But I don't need to channel the space back to me. Mm-hmm. Right. That's one form. Then there's the crying of just you hurt me by suggesting I was racist. And then I'm just like, okay, that you gotta get over. Because you are, <laughs> okay? Seriously. I'm gonna say something I probably hope I don't regret. All white people are racist in the sense that we've all been socialized into this construct. Yeah. We all benefit from it. We have all internalized uh, it. And it's on us to figure out how we've been socialized into it and, and to challenge it. But notice that I'm not, I'm not saying all people are racist because I reserve that term to describe what happens when a group's bias is backed with power. Right. right. So I'm clear that my work centers whiteness. Mm-hmm. And yet again, you know, conscious or not, here is a white person standing in front of a room full of people granted authority and credibility to their voice, like virtually all people we grant authority and credibility to. And in this case, on race, no, no less. Right. And I'm also clear that to not use this platform and this position to break with white solidarity, to break with white silence, to name something that I can as an insider name in a particular way, that's not acceptable either, right? Because in many ways, whiteness stays centered by being unmarked and unnamed, Mm -hmm. right? And so when you expose it and make it visible, in a way, you're decentering it, Mm -hmm. right? And the way that I look at it is I would like to not use my position in that way is for me to really be white. Mm-hmm. And I would like to be a little less white. Now, when I say that, I want to be really clear. That doesn't mean I want to be more Italian-American, right? Let's all claim our ethnic roots. That's not what I'm saying. For me to be less right, white, whiteness as we have set it up is an oppressive state right? So to be less white is to be less oppressive, to be less certain, to be less arrogant, Mm -hmm. to be more humble, right? To be more curious, to be more uh, intentionally and actively anti-racist. These are ways that interrupt whiteness, Mm -hmm. right? And it's only one piece of the puzzle, 
My voice or the white voice should never be the only voice you hear. But if hearing my voice first helps soften the soil so that you can hear people of color challenging you with less defensiveness, then listen to my voice. But that needs to be your goal is Mm -hmm. you have to. We cannot understand this if we don't listen to people of color. And plenty of them are willing to teach us and be paid for it. Right, exactly. And I, but I think that's the key part. This is our work to yes. do first, to come to the table more equipped. Yes. And it is not the job. Uh, we can't, we're, by making people of color responsible for the problem and fixing the problem, just creates another problem or continues the same problem, right? right. It is on us to do the work of fixing it and to learn how to do that. And I mean, don't you wish men would talk to one another about sexism and rape culture? Yes. Right? It's like, I mean, that is a huge missing piece, right? And white people, we need to talk to one another about white supremacist culture. Mm-hmm. Right now, we have to we have to do that with accountability, with humility, with engaging with people of color. Right, and, but we have to do this. This is our work. We are ultimately responsible for this. Mm-hmm. Right? We, to, we created it, and we yes, need to and fix we benefit it. from it, and we hold yeah. the institutional power around it. The number one question I get when I give a talk is, "Okay, okay, okay, now what do I do?" Yeah, And I have actually found that to be a somewhat disingenuous question, right? I'm really sorry to say that most people, after hearing this talk or reading my book even, are probably not really going to do anything different except continue to be nice, which, by the way, is the title of my next book. <laughs> <laughs> Niceness is not anti-racism. It's great. Be nice. But that's not interrupting racism, right? right. And so many of us white people think that smiliness means we're not racist. And I hope that kind of gets some of your listeners back up that I just said you're not going to do anything different, right? Whatever it takes to motivate you to get engaged and involved you know, I want to, I want to help ha- happen, right? So here's my reply when I get asked, what do I do? I ask a question back. What has enabled you to be a full, productive, educated, professional adult and not know what to do about racism? How have you managed not to know when the information's everywhere and when they've been telling us forever, mm-hmm. right? It takes some effort not to know. I see it as not an innocence. I see it as a, as a kind of refusal to know, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's meant to be a challenge because what would you do about anything you had the most remote interest in finding out more about? What would you do? Google it for goodness sakes, okay? Mm-hmm. There is so much good information out there. My website alone is filled with lists of things you can do and get involved with, right? So it's meant to be a challenge when I say, how have you managed not to know? But it's also a sincere question. If you take out a piece of paper and start reflecting on, well, why don't I know? You're going to have a list, and it's going to be your map. And nothing on that list will be quick or easy to challenge, but everything on that map can be addressed, right? Absolutely. And I hope and I believe, and it seems like it's that this is happening, that you know, the millennial, I think it's a millennial generation. Is it the first generation that will be primarily non-white in the workforce? It's this generation or the next generation. But in order to sort of survive, too, in business, like, companies have to change. They 
have to change their they, culture. They do. Now, keep holding, however, like that white men are the minority in the country and they still hold the power. So right. it, it, there will be adaptations with what they call the browning of the workforce. But uh, power doesn't shift easily. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think I think we can see that all around us. Right. So 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 that's. That in itself doesn't mean that this will change, right? Well, one one thing we didn't get into so is the the self help movement, like that. A lot of your listeners is that kind mm-hmm. of self care and self focus. Mm-hmm. So, we, I can give a little challenge to it, or, or yeah, not. Go for it. Okay, I would just offer uh, for your listeners to really think deeply about the aspects of this self-care movement that are really about reinforcing privilege, reinforcing the ideas that I deserve to have the best of everything, I deserve to be comfortable, that there are aspects of the self-care movement that are problematic. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot out there that's that's being written that can challenge that, and I would really urge your listeners to look into it, right? And to speak, I mean, these are, none of this is easy. That That's an uncomfortable question. Mm-hmm. But until we're in a society where everyone can move with freedom and safety and attend to their every personal need, then me attending to that is reinforcing that inability. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. I would counter that in the context of, of thinking about self-care is sort of some an, an internal resourcing, particularly for women who were often sort of raised on this idea of scarcity and not enough, that until we, and, and maybe these things can happen in tandem, but that when we get to that point of feeling like we have enough, and I think that even the idea of enough is something that needs to be reframe for a lot of us and we have to work through whatever it is, that programming that makes us think that we're not safe, that once you can calm that or quiet that fear or feel like you yourself are keeping yourself safe, then I feel like you really have the energy that's needed to turn out. But that when we operate from a place of not feeling like we have enough or depletion or fear, then we just promulgate that on the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, if we think about self-care as how do I build the stamina mm-hmm. to to engage and stay engaged in the struggle for racial justice, then absolutely, right? Yeah. Because that is what we need to do, right? And and this is a really good place to look at how the intersection of sexism and racism can set us up to collude. And so I have an article that I wrote called My Class Didn't Trump My Race because I was actually – I actually grew up in poverty. Mm-hmm. And so I have that internalized imposter syndrome. I was also raised female and Catholic and so – I got a lot of conditioning. You don't question authority. You you don't your thinking is not important, you know, silence, a lot of those messages. And so when I'm silent about racism, uh, it's often being driven by my own inferiority, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm feeling intellectually insecure in this room, and so I don't want to speak up, even though I'm seeing something racially problematic, because these people are probably smarter than me, and they're going to out-argue me. My point is that my silence in those moments is being driven 
by inferiority, not superiority. Maybe a, a white woman in a room filled with white men and the white men are speaking uh, something racist or telling a racist joke may have that same struggle, right? Wants to speak up but feels intimidated, mm-hmm. not as equipped to debate them as they may be to debate her. And yet, regardless of what's driving my silence, the question that has never failed me in my efforts to challenge my conditioning is, how is my silence functioning? Mm. And when I realized, you know what, your silence is functioning to collude with racism. You're, you're going to be seen as a team player. You're going to get ahead for not bringing this up. And that, when I realized that, I also realized that's not acceptable to me. And in fact, that I am um, less smart because I grew up poor is a lie, mm-hmm. right? It's a lie that I swallowed. Right. That women are not as smart as men is a lie that we're given and that we often internalize. Right. But it's still a lie. And when we push through it to speak in those moments, we're simultaneously healing the lie of our own oppression while using our privileged positions to break with with privilege and power. So for me, as a feminist, right, to center race has actually been an incredibly powerful way to address all mm-hmm. the barriers in other places that I face. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's a really powerful way because you can't talk about sexism without talking about race. Yeah. Right? And I think, too, that that the healing that the work can bring or the need to heal in order to not take your wounds and put them on other people to mm-hmm. operate from a place of being wounded mm-hmm. is so critical. Like, I feel like until collectively we all address our own forms of trauma and heal it and do that work, which is hard and uncomfortable but essential, then we can't really put good energy toward... Not to say that it can't right. happen simultaneously. Yeah, it's difficult, right? Because if we wait for that, we're, that's probably not going to happen. And this is where saliency really is a useful idea for me. So what we're talking about right now is intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And that that's a concept coined by a legal scholar and a black woman, Kimberly Crenshaw, that we occupy multiple social positions that interact in complex ways, right? So yes, I am a woman, but I'm also a white woman. I'm also able-bodied and I'm also married Mm -hmm. to a cis, I'm a cis white woman (laughs) married to a cis white man, right? All of these things are, are social locations, if you will. And in that room that I just talked about where I'm intimidated to speak up, right? Gender or sexism may be very salient in that moment, Mm -hmm. right? But then when racism comes into the room, racial privilege becomes very salient, right? So we kind of move through. It's not like I'm this or I'm that, but in each moment, I need to ask myself, what is a salient position I'm in right now? You know, what is right there on the surface? And then how do I use that position? So sometimes, like the Me Too movement is is women using their positions to speak to their experience of oppression, right? Mm-hmm. And then maybe another another time, a, a, a woman who's involved in Me Too is advocating against racism. Now she's using her privileged position to challenge oppression. Mm-hmm. Right. So you kind of just different in different moments, different contexts, we can use our positions in different ways. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Robin D'Angelo. You can learn more about her work at robindangelo.com. That's D-I-A-N-G-E-L-O. 
Make sure you get a copy of her book, White Fragility, if you haven't already, and learn more about her upcoming workshops at educationforracialequity.com. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. Mary asks, as a celebrity CEO, I have noticed an increase in personal scrutiny towards you, which I think is complete bullshit. (laughs) And the second part is, do you find it difficult to mingle with civilians during IGH? I ask this because I've attended four in-group health summits and you mingle freely for the most part. Mary, thank you for these questions. Your first question, I definitely do agree with you that I get increased scrutiny for sure. I think it's because I'm a celebrity and I'm a woman and I changed careers and I think people project a lot onto me and I also, you know, can be clickbaity. So um, people people tend to write a lot. But um, I would say that it's actually really strengthened who I am as a CEO because it constantly reminds me to focus on my priorities as opposed to looking for external validation. I mean, I think I've grown this business with a very clear understanding that I've had a lot of headwind. And, you know, that's rare for a business. It's rare for a business to be able to grow and scale with so much resistance. And what's so wonderful is that, you know, it just proves to me over and over again that the way we run the business and the content that we create and the product that we create continues to resonate so deeply with people. And so the business keeps growing despite any scrutiny that I personally go under or the business goes under. And mingling at InGoop Health is one of my favorite parts of the day. I really love connecting with the attendees and understanding why they're there and what they're getting out of the day and hearing feedback. The one thing that I don't like is when people ask to take pictures during InGoop Health, which of course I understand, but I really just want to be there with everybody and as a participant and as, you know, yes, I'm the I'm sort of the figurehead, but I want to be interacting with everybody all day. So I thought maybe, maybe next time we'll do some group photos and get them out of the way. And then I can just hang out with everybody more. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.